Nehemiah chapter uh, 8 is where we will start this morning. Nehemiah 8. I married into, uh, skip back a few, but you're getting ahead of me. Yeah. I told him good job, and now he's like, yeah, I got this. <laughs> all right, so Nehemiah chapter 8. We're actually going to cover 8, 9, and 10, but we're not going to read all the verses in there, so a lot of this is just going to be kind of us sweeping through. But, you know, I married into a family. Every family has its certain recipes, certain things that you're known for. Uh, if you want to know what you're known for, wait till homecoming time, because what you're asked to cook is what you're known for, by the way. Um, when, when someone comes to you and they're like, yeah, you can just, you can just bring some cups and napkins. Uh, that, that's what you're known for, okay? But, but if someone comes to you and is like, man, you've got to cook this, man, because everybody loves this. That's, that's your family recipe. All, all families have one. I grew up, my family, um, the biggest one that sticks out to me is chess squares. My mom does chess squares, and they're just wonderful. Uh, I married into a family, though, that didn't have one or two recipes. I married into a family that had one or two cookbooks of recipes. I mean, there, there's just all kinds of good stuff. For me, the one that sticks out, though, is spaghetti. Spaghetti that you don't cook in 30 minutes or an hour on a stovetop. Spaghetti that takes all day long. Man, does the house smell good when it's spaghetti night. I'm telling you, man, that that is, I sure wouldn't complain. That's all I'm going to say about that. I, I love the spaghetti that she makes, and, and she's got all kinds of great recipes that are wonderful, but I mean, that's just, that just really sticks out uh, to me. If you're going to make that classic family dish, you, you've got to follow the recipe, right? But not everything is just about having the right ingredients and throwing it together, uh, uh, sometimes you got to know how to put it together. Have you ever baked before? You've seen this baking. Like sometimes the amount of flour it says is a little too much. Other times it's not quite enough. And so you kind of have to adjust on the fly, depending on how things look. You need that expertise to know exactly how to get it right. Revival is kind of the same way. Revival has some specific ingredients. And while there may not be a one-size-fits-all with the circumstances that make a revival, some of these ingredients are the same throughout every recipe. This is a, a basic recipe here that put together with God's guidance and done God's way with God's timing will result in revival. So this morning, I want us to take a look at some of the ingredients of revival. And I believe that with God's help, we can take some of the things we find in Nehemiah 8 through 10 and find that they are the ingredients we need for our recipe of revival. So it starts with the first ingredient. Now, the first ingredient is God's word. God's word. If you look on a package and you look at the ingredients list in that food, the ingredients are listed in order based on what's used, what's in there the most. So the first ingredient is the most ingredient. That's the thing that's in there more than any other ingredient. It's the most influential ingredient. It, it is the ingredient that makes up more of this food than anything else. Okay? Which is why you shouldn't read ingredients lists on some of the things you like because the first thing is high fructose corn syrup or some kind of crazy stuff and you're just like, Really? That's the most of this? Oh, man, I, maybe, I, maybe I need to eat a little better, right? Um, God's Word is the single most influential ingredient in our recipe for revival. And of course this is right. 
I mean, it's God's word that speaks the universe into existence in Genesis 1. It's, it's his word that forms the foundation of all of life. It's his word that sustains life. So, of course, it's his word that revives life. Now the people in Nehemiah's day have a wall. They have finished the project that Nehemiah was sent to do. But now more is needed than just a wall. It ain't just about having security. It's about having something worth securing. They need to rebuild the community. And that starts by reading God's word. Look in uh, Nehemiah. This is the first day of the seventh month, the 25th day of the prior month. Uh, they finished hanging all the gates. So, so they're going to gather together at the water gate. I know, water gate. Yeah, I get that. But this was the gate where water was brought into the city most commonly. So there you go. This is the water gate. They're going to gather at water gate and they're going to hear God's word. But listen, verse five of chapter eight. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. Does that sound familiar? Where do you think I got this from? And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. It lists a bunch of leaders at the beginning of, of verse 7, but then it says at the end of 7 what those leaders were doing. They helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people had understood the reading. So here we go. Ezra stands to read the word of God. He's on a platform that's been specifically built for the purpose. There's a brand new pulpit and he's standing in it. He, he lays out the scroll of the book of the law. Everybody stands and worships God and he reads from the book. And as he's reading, there's people in the crowd that are well positioned in different places and they're saying, now here, what, what he means here, what they're saying here is this. This is what that means. This is how we apply this word. So, so it, here it says this. Um, this is, this is, this is the principle behind it. This is how you apply it in certain situations. And so for half the day, they are reading God's word and hearing it interpreted so that the people could understand it clearly. And the result of that initial reading of scripture, well, it's sorrow. Look in verse 10. Then he, this is Nehemiah, said to them, go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready for this day is holy to our Lord and do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. What happened was they heard the word of God and they were sorrowful because they realized they had broken the word of God. And so now Nehemiah has to, they're so sad, they're so sorrowful that Nehemiah is like, hey, this is a feast day. Go feast. Be joyful. Don't be grieved. Eat the fat. Eat the good stuff. Drink sweet wine. Enjoy. There are times when it's appropriate to enjoy. This is a day for enjoying. This isn't a day for sorrow. This isn't a day for grief. Listen, I know the word is hard, but not today. We'll have days for that, and they will. We'll see that in a little bit. But for now, this day is a day for God. This is the day the Lord has made, so I will rejoice and be glad in it. He says, the joy of the Lord is your strength. You may not be able to do this 
That's okay. God's got you. He'll bring, he'll bring the joy. His own joy will empower you to do what he's called you to do today. So eat the fat, drink sweet wine, enjoy. Go back to that family recipe for a moment. Every ingredient has its purpose. No, you don't go back, James. There you go. Every ingredient has its purpose. Spaghetti, that, that tomato sauce, that's the base for all the flavor. You need something to carry all those herbs and spices and for them to mesh together in and, and to, to pour out on the spaghetti. That's what that tomato sauce is for. It's the base for everything else that goes on. It's the root to the gumbo, right? It, it's that start, that thing that you need to start with that will make everything good. In, in baking, it's yeast that makes the dough light and soft, right? In, um, in mayonnaise, you have oil and water. And I don't know if y'all know this, but oil and water don't like to mix. So you need an egg. Because the egg grabs a hold of the oil and grabs a hold of the water and keeps them from separating. You need that. Every ingredient has its specific purpose. The purpose of God's word in this recipe of revival is to bring us face to face with our own sinfulness. To show us that we need a God to forgive our sins. See, because without this, we would think we're okay. We would think we're better than our neighbor. We we would think we're not as bad as those folks, so we're doing all right. But God's word brings us face to face, brings the, the sinner face to face with the holy, pure God of the universe and makes us realize that we need a savior. The purpose of the word of God is to point out our sin and show us, hey, this has to be dealt with. You need revival. That's the purpose of the word of God. Without it, we don't even recognize our own need. But here, with the word, it brings us to mourning over our sins and to seeking the revival that we so desperately need. That's why it's the most important ingredient. But not every ingredient is the most influential, but it still matters. Can you imagine a fried chicken sandwich without the breading on the chicken? Boy, that'd be weird, wouldn't it? Now, breading doesn't make up the most of that sandwich. But boy, it's important, isn't it? Our second ingredient is like that. It's important. It's not the most influential. It's not the, the most, the, 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 the largest amount in that food. But it's still so important. And it's the ingredient of obedience. You see, obedience is what takes revival from the need for revival to putting us in the right place to be revived. Uh, look. Verse 13, on the second day, the heads of the father's houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra, to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths. As it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square at the water gate and in the square of the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in the booths for from the days of Yeshua, the son of Nun, to that day the people of Israel had not done so. And there was a very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. See that first ingredient? You see why that first ingredient is first? Because every single day, 
They kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. You might have missed it in all the details about the booths and, and everything that they were supposed to do, but do you notice the, the obedience throughout this passage? It says they hadn't done so since the days of Yeshua, son of Nun. Seven, eight hundred years prior, Yeshua, the son of Nun, had led the Israelites into the, the promised land, and they, they started conquering the land starting in Jericho and, and working their way through, conquering most of it, not all of it. But it's in those days, the last time this feast was celebrated the way they celebrated it. This was a feast that was uh, uh, really, it was kind of a providential thing because they had just read the book of the law on the first day. Now they're getting together for Bible study on the second day of the month, and they find out that within two weeks, there's a feast that they're supposed to be celebrating. Isn't that interesting? That's something that often happens. When you choose to turn back toward God, when you choose to follow him, there's often a simple, immediate act of obedience. There's a chance for you to immediately apply what you do. We, we have one that we do in this church. It's called baptism. That's that immediate act of obedience. It's simple, right? God makes it very clear to be baptized. So, so we baptize. And who do we baptize? Do we baptize folks that have been Christians for 35 years? No. We baptize new believers. Do we baptize babies? No. Why not? They're not following Jesus yet. We baptize new believers because they've made the choice to follow God. And here is a simple, immediate act of obedience that you can take to show that you are serious about following God. That it's not just you talking with your mouth. It's actually the way that you're going to live your life. And it often happens that way, that a simple, immediate act of obedience gives you the chance to live out this commitment that you want to make. See, the fact of the matter is God will not revive those who do not obey. And sometimes we get that chance to obey right off the bat. Jesus comes to his disciples, follow me. And they follow him immediately. It's that kind of obedience that willingness to stop, well, I, I, I said it the other day, right? To stop wronging and start writing. It's that kind of obedience that makes revival possible. Otherwise, your chicken doesn't have breading. And I got to be honest with you, fried chicken without breading just isn't that good. I'm, I'm just going to, and trust me, I know fried chicken, okay? I'm an expert. Obedience is a vital ingredient for revival. Even though it's not the first, it's still vital. There's a third ingredient. A third thing that, that we need in this recipe for revival, and it's confession. We're not going to read all of chapter 9, but I want, you to, I want you to see just a couple of verses here and there to show you uh, what ends up happening next. They've celebrated this Feast of Booths. The feast would have ended on the 23rd day of the month. So on the 24th day of the month, well, let's read it for ourselves. Chapter 9, verse 1. On the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. That's not the position of, uh, of glory. That's the position of one who's mourning. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law. There it is again. For a quarter of the day and for another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord, their God. So right after the end of the Feast of Booths, they gather once again, this time to confess. 
They confessed God's character and works throughout history. They confessed how he created the world in verse 6 and verses 7 and 8. He called Abram and brought him into the promised land. In verses 9 through 11, how he redeemed Israel from slavery in Egypt through the works of all sorts of miracles and mighty actions. In 12 to 15, they recount how God led Israel through the wilderness and provided for their needs. Somewhat so that their shoes didn't wear out. You talk about a miracle. That's a miracle. Their clothes didn't wear out. God provided for them every step of the way. But in spite of all this, verse 16, but they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. Even even while Moses is up on the mountain getting 10 commandments, Aaron is down in the valley making a golden calf for the people to worship. Even then, even then God still forgives them. He still leads them. He still feeds them. He still miraculously provides for them. He still gives them the promised land. Verse 26, nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemies time after time. God is so good to the people of Israel. And time after time, after time, after time, Israel rebels against their God. Sound familiar? It should. It shouldn't, but it does. Let me put it that way. This whole chapter recounts this ebb and flow of God's faithfulness and Israel's rebelliousness. And you may as well take out Israel and put your own name there because time after time, God has been so good to me. Time after time, he's been so good to you. And time after time, we have gone astray like sheep without a shepherd. And the Lord has laid on him the the iniquity of us all. You see, confession is a means whereby we admit our wrongs before God. It's one thing to know you need reviving. It's another thing to fess up and say, yeah, I need reviving. This is the ingredient that is most distasteful. You eat it by itself and it's bitter. It's nasty. But it's what makes the dish, it's what makes the dish so, so wonderful. Our confession puts us in the perfect place for the last ingredient. Or you might think of it this way, not so much as an ingredient, but as a cooking method. And that is repentance. If God's word... Obedience and confession are the ingredients in our recipe for revival. Repentance is how you cook it. It's how you bring it all together. It's where you turn on the oven and bake it to perfection. It's Confession is what brings us on our knees before God. Repentance is the means by which we are exalted into the very throne room of God. After listening, listing out the leaders who signed the covenant in the first part of chapter 10, um, we see the repentance of the people. Look in 28. The rest of the people, the priests, Levites, gatekeepers, singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God and to observe and to do all the commandments of the Lord our God and his rules and his statutes. They covenant. They covenant with God. And it's all of them. I mean, we practically name the entire community of Israel in these verses. Everybody. They all make this covenant with God. And what is the covenant to do? They're going to do certain things. 
Chapter, uh, verse 30 tells us they will not give their sons and daughters to foreigners in marriages. In verse 31, they promise that they will remember the Sabbath day and not buy or sell goods on that day, but also the Sabbath year to not exact the debt in the seventh year and to not harvest crops. They promise to provide taxes for the administration of the temple of God to make sure that there's always sacrifices and always uh, uh, the, the right proper things going on in the temple. They promise to bring the tithes and the first fruits to God, the firstborn, the first crops, the first income. In other words, they'll stop disregarding the laws of God and start putting them into practice. They'll repent. Now, you didn't see the word repent in this chapter. If you read this chapter, you will not find the word repent. In fact, you will not find the word repent in any of these chapters, chapter 8, 9, or 10. And in fact, if I, don't, if I remember correctly, I don't think you find the word repent at all in the book of Nehemiah, the whole book. But man, it's there. It's right here. Do you really want revival? You really want revival? I mean, I mean genuine, like, like God's presence reinvigorating the life of his children and saving the lost. Do you really want that? Whether it's a personal revival, whether it's a community revival, a church revival, a national revival, these ingredients, until we actually repent, they're just sitting in the dish. In, in 2 Chronicles 7, 14, we quote this a lot. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I heal, uh, hear their prayers and will forgive their sins and will heal their land. Right? We know that verse, right? We say that verse. Did you catch the last item in that list? Humble themselves, pray, seek my face, turn from their wicked ways. Until we repent, God cannot, no, 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 God will not revive. He won't do it. We must repent if we are to see genuine revival. If we want revival in our homes, we must repent. If we want revival in our workplaces, we must repent. If we want revival in our schools, we must repent. If we want revival in our neighborhoods, we must repent. If we want revival in our church, we must repent. If we want revival in our nation, we must repent. There's no way around it. I mentioned earlier the smell of spaghetti. Can you smell that smell of revival? It's cooking in that oven. Those flavors are meshing together. Do you smell it? Do you, do, you, do you smell the sweet aroma wafting through the air? See, this is a meal that will satisfy the deepest hunger pangs, not only for us, but for so many others. God's made you to live a life full, and His reviving Spirit can bring that life to reality. But it's going to take God's Word. It's going to take obedience. It's going to take confession. And it's going to take repentance. Repent of your sins. Confess them to God. Trust him to save you if he's already saved you. You still need to confess your sins to God and trust him to remove those sins from you. You still need to repent because until we do, revival is just a cold dish full of canned goods and sitting on the counter, not ready to satisfy the longings of our hearts. It's almost ready. Dinner will be served soon. Will you come dine with him at the table of revival? Father, I pray this morning as we transitioned to an invitation, 
I pray that we would see the sins that are before us. You, you know, and you can speak into our hearts exactly what we need to repent of. For some of us, there, there are things that are lifelong problems that we've been trying to fight with. For some of us, there are things that have developed in recent years that we've just fallen off the path. For some of us, it's things that we've always had tendencies toward, and lately that's just, we haven't really dealt with them the way we should. Whatever the case may be, would you poke our hearts in the right spots? Would you, would you bid us to come to your table? Use your word to bring us to confession and obedience, to repent of our sins, and to follow you. This is your time. You do your work. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.